So today we're going to learn a little bit more about Irish resources, I think, and we're joined again by Fergus, uh, co-host. So hopefully our guest, Mike Philcox, will tell us a bit more about the Carboniferous in Ireland. Exactly, yeah. So ICRAG stands for the Irish Centre for Research in Applied Geosciences. And one of the things that we're really interested in are natural resources and lots of the resources that are of interest to us, um, especially when it comes to metals, actually are found in the Carboniferous geological period. And we're joined by one of the people who knows the most about that particular period today in Dr. Mike Falcox. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing what he has to say about that. And also I would have learned about Michael's work during my own PhD on the fossils in the Irish Carboniferous. So I would have heard his lectures in Trinity. So it's going to be interesting to ask him about his time in Trinity as well. Yeah, I think it should be a really, really interesting episode. He's he's (laughs) well-travelled. This is iCragorama. Season 1. Episode 12. I'm Fergus McAuliffe. And I'm Anthea Lackia. Today we're joined by Dr. Michael Philcox. Mike is a geologist and consultant associated with Trinity College Dublin's geology department. Welcome. So we're here with Dr. Michael Philcox. We see you around in iCrag sometimes. So can you tell us what your role is there? Well, some years ago, in 1984, I published a a slim volume on the uh, Irish Carboniferous, well, the um, part of the Lower Carboniferous, based on a number of uh, boreholes which were described or contributed by the uh, mining companies for the first time. They got together, having been in competition all the time and being very secretive, and at this conference they agreed to contribute uh, one or two borehole descriptions and it was my job at that time to do a a sort of compilation at the end which I did and subsequently wrote it up as a booklet which is generally referred to as the blue book. What I'm doing now in iCrag is an updated version based on a lot more core both geographically wider scope and further up the geological succession and I'm being assisted by a number of people who are doing some of the technical bits and pieces that come into the background of that. So is this all about stratigraphy then? Yes, the limestone changes character upwards as all the layers are different as you go up the succession and what I do is look for changes and look for distinctive units. The one might be one with a particular fossils in it or it might be a particular colour or uh, composition and I try and recognise that in other boreholes which have been drilled uh, nearby and then further away which you can do up to a point and then everything changes and so the the interest starts when you (laughs) when you fail to be able to correlate from one uh, succession to another and then you interpret all these layers in terms of the sediments that they were originally. They were sediments on a warm sea floor 300 odd million years ago and uh, part of the interest is interpreting what the rock layers mean in terms of the sediments and the sedimentary environment. 
Yeah, so that's what stratigraphy is, isn't it? Just yes. uh, interpreting layers of yes. rock. And for someone who may not be familiar with stratigraphy or succession or anything like that, why do we need to know these things? Well, it's like many of these things. You don't need to know them in the sense that man had been knocking around for a few million years without knowing the stratigraphy of the Irish Carboniferous. But they are of academic interest. It's part of the build-up of knowledge of what we, what surrounds us. But also, in the particular case of Ireland, important lead and zinc deposits are found in the Irish Carboniferous. And so my work um, has largely been for companies looking for more uh, zinc and lead uh, following the discovery in 1960 at Tina and the Tina mine and after that a lot of companies came into Ireland and it was suddenly realised that there were um, large numbers of these deposits not always economic but we'd find them in different uh, parts of Ireland and then it wasn't until what 10 years later that Navan was discovered and this is a huge deposit by world standards, something like the fifth largest zinc deposit in the world, and internationally known and visited by geologists from all over the world. And I've been working at Navan there on that deposit or on the limestones that house the deposit for over 40 years now. And, and I wouldn't have been doing that if it had all been straightforward. So the interest of the thing is that there are always lots of problems and you scratch your head for a while and somebody drills another hole which reveals the real character of what you're trying to find out. Yes, so you mentioned correlation, so that's something that you think about when you have a section of rocks in one locality and another one in another locality, you try to see how the strata, the layers are related. In, in terms of the academic aspect and interpreting the strata in terms of sediments, if you think of the seafloor at the present time, part of it is rocky, part of it is sandy, some of it is mud. There are steep slopes at the edge of the shelf plunging down into the deep and all that sort of thing is recorded in the rocks. The seafloor is covered with sediments and it's those that eventually turn into rock if they're not swept away or eroded off. So when it comes to, to correlation, are you trying to correlate the time? So so to find things that were created at the same time? Yes. Okay. So, uh, and this is where it becomes tricky because if the, if the sediment type has changed from one area to another, you can't say this, this is uh, rock unit A here and rock unit A there because the two are completely different. So at that point... The next step is to look at the fossils. The fossils change through time, and if you're lucky, your succession is characterized by specific assemblages of fossils at particular time levels, and you will hope to be able to recognize uh, one assemblage in another area, even if the host rock is different. That's biostratigraphic correlation as distinct from lithological correlation, which is purely on the rock types. And is there another type? Is there like one that uses dating, like say, like a chemical um, signature? Yes, there are are those sort of things. Um, And in fact, a lot of modern research is looking into geochemical signatures in the rocks, which would be able to use so that you're not dependent on fossils, which may not exist and you're not dependent on uh, 
having the same rock type. Yes, and so you're looking at evolution of fossils over time, so of animals over time, and yes. then often they don't become fossilized, so it's only a fraction of animals that do become fossilized yes. in the record, so it's tricky. Animals and plants, of course, and plants. Are generally not whole plants, but things like plant spores. So when it comes to, you know, because you, you mentioned earlier that part of this portion of the Carboniferous in Ireland existed at the bottom of a of a warm sea but what is of interest there appears to be these deposits of lead and zinc how do those deposits of lead and zinc end up in those rock bodies well i think that's a question everybody is interested in because if they understood that properly they'd have a much better idea where to go and look okay. instead of sticking pins into a cushion okay <laughs> uh, uh, our job as geologists is to try and uh, understand the context of the ore bodies that we know about and then apply what we learn from that into exploration. How the deposits got there, very often they, they um, are related to faults where the strata have been displaced and, and in Ireland a lot of them, these faults were active during the time of sedimentation. So a fault may develop on the edge of a shallow water platform uh, on one side and a deep water basin on the other and uh, fault movement along that uh, contact zone is uh, often a conduit for hot fluids coming up from much deeper in the earth carrying metals and when those metals in the, uh, which are carried as chlorides meet uh, marine sulphate then the metals change from, from chlorides into sulphides and are deposited as galena, for example, which is lead sulphide, and sphalerite, which is the zinc sulphide. So it's where these two fluids, one coming from the, from the sea and the other one coming from depth, meet, okay. which would be fairly near the surface. So th there's still a lot left to, to understand then in terms of how these deposits form and it's contentious, is that? Yes, because I've only talked of general principles and there are all kinds of problems and, and those, those are not the only two metals. There can be other metals, some of which are contaminants and make the ore either very difficult to smelt or to, to purify or possibly make them even impossible because of the impurities. But then what would your typical day at the mine be? Well, I'd, strictly speaking, I don't work at the mine. I've been underground down the mine uh, se several times, uh, several mines, including Tina and Navan and Lachine. I work more on the exploration side. In the Navan area, I work mostly on drilling, which is done around the ore deposit trying to find new additional pods of, of ore which will extend the life of the mine. And I also work on areas well away from the mine where the company has a license to explore in areas where there is no known deposit. Okay. And I do that uh, for two or three different companies in my capacity as a consultant and specialist in carboniferous stratigraphy. So logging is still something that's very important for a geologist to do and can you explain what it is? Well it, the core is laid out by the drillers in boxes uh, about a meter and a half long, five feet, and it may have, nowadays it usually has about two troughs. 
So they're laid out and each box is then labelled and eventually it comes into the depot. It's laid out on trellises so that it's at a convenient height to look at. And uh, I would look, look at the core to try and identify the different changes in limestone type that I was looking at. Sometimes it's quite easy because of colour. Sometimes you have to look for subtler things, uh, the type of bedding, the type, the actual limestone type, which may not be visible from a distance, but it can, you can see when you get closer to it. And then I either make a verbal log, and I say from 0 to 20 feet we have, or meters, whatever, uh, we have a limestone of this, that, and the other type with such and such characteristics. And from 20 meters to 30 meters, we have something different. Or I can do it graphically by having a kind of symbol for one type of rock. In fact, I may have three or four different columns uh, side by side, one showing the rock type, one showing the fossil type or thickness of the bedding, the dip of the bedding relative to the horizontal, all that kind of thing. That goes into a graphic log. When, when all that is done, you do that for the whole hole and you finish up. Of course, there are many changes, so you divide the succession up into the, the major units, which might, might be formations, and uh, you can make a summary log showing the thickness of the formations, what formations are present, and this will give the, the reader a kind of an index from which he can uh, then go back to the more detailed log and pick out the details that he needs. You, I know you teach students this kind of skill. Uh, well, I did a little <laughs> bit, yes. I, I found a, uh, a particular unit at Navan which had a lot of thin bedding and a lot of variation. And I managed to get four or five cores through the same unit. Each unit would require something like four or five uh, boxes. And I laid them out on, uh, on the benches and I got the students to divide themselves up and each log in detail uh, as much as they could from one core. And when they'd done that, they'd need to go off and look at the other cores and see what they made of it. And what they should find was that the other cores showed practically the same thing. So they could then have fun drawing their correlation lines from, say, one thick limestone bed to another in, a, in another core. I did it for a number of years, but I must say the last time I found moving all those core boxes up the up the stairs in the museum building oh. was <laughs> becoming too much for me. Our director recently ran a little kind of team building exercise for us here in Icrag where he did the same thing, but um, we got a series of, of sponge cakes baked and dyed different colours, and then there was a, a sort of an ore body of a particular food colouring on the inside of one of the cakes, um, but he then cut up the different layers and arranged them in different ways and then iced, iced the whole cake. And everyone was given, I think, five clear plastic straws that they had to, you know, like had to core at different points of the cake and try to work out where the ore body was. So they're, they're a, bit, a, a bit lighter than carrying boxes of actual core, but <laughs> you yourself would probably end up heavier because we had all the cake afterwards. So. Well, I've never tried eating limestone core. I, I never have to. <laughs> Can you tell us a bit about then field work? So you're looking at these cores, but then the other element that you, the other bits of evidence you can look at come from rocks yeah. that are exposed in the field or can you tell us about your work in quarries and so on? 
Well, I, I started as a geologist doing a, a thesis from my undergraduate, and that involved mapping an area in North County Cork. And in those days, there were lots of little quarries all over the fields. The farmers used to, to uh, get their own rock out, or they would burn lime. There were lots of lime kilns around. So mapping meant visiting these quarries and occasionally finding rock in ditches and road cuttings and things like that. And again, you'd be looking at different types of limestone and you'd try to follow one type or another across country and put the boundaries on a map. So that was the basis of field mapping. Some of the larger quarries provided uh, a lot more detail. And in my particular area, there was a big sugar company quarry at at, uh, Buttervent where I spent a lot of my, half of my eventual PhD thesis was devoted to that one quarry. And of course, field work... You, you can spend a lot of time walking across the fields, plunging through hawthorn hedges, which I became quite adept at in North Cork. And so the time you spend actually looking at rock is very much smaller than when you're looking at corn. It's all laid out in front of you. And it's been interesting as, as a consultant over the last 40 years or so, in the early days of my work, which started about 1970, Mapping was an important, an important aspect of work for the companies because the existing maps of surface geology in most cases were relatively primitive. So a lot of detail mapping was, was quite important for the companies. And then over the years as that became clearer and more drilling was undertaken, then the, the, the consulting work switched gradually to less to field work and more to logging core. Mm. Do you miss going out in the field? I do. I, I'm a farmer's son and I was brought up on the, in the country and uh, that's one of the reasons I got involved in geology, that I like being outdoors and out in the fresh air and the rain and all the rest of it. Any unusual stories about what happened in the field or does what happened in the field stay in the field? <laughs> no, no lots, I had lots of adventures. I remember in North Cork, the people there, the farmers, I came from an English background and if I wanted to cross somebody's fields, I would go to the farmer and ask permission to do so. And quite often he would look at me very fiercely and say, why not? Uh, you know, as if it was an insult. So I got used to that. And, and uh, there, are, there are various um, stories like that. It went, when I left Dublin and went to Canada, one of the things I did was fit up a horse party to go into the Rocky Mountains and look at a particular type of rock and we, I had a couple of um, half-breed Indians from the foothills who fitted up the actual horse party. But there was an adventure on the way back. These were fairly broad valleys with forested sides and sort of scrub along the bottom. And we were going in through the scrub. And about a quarter of a mile in front of us, an isolated clump of pine trees suddenly burst into flames. It was like something out of the Old Testament. We hurried on to this and... Uh, discovered that the pine needles around the bottom of the tree had been smouldering probably since a storm which we had had a few days before and this was now noon and they must have dried out and got to the point where they actually ignited and we spent a couple of hours digging out these uh, smouldering pine needles (laughs) and when we eventually got out we were thanked profusely by the forestry service for, do, for this, otherwise oh, yes. it could have been much more serious. There, there was another thing about that particular camp while I was there. One day 
smoke started pouring up the valley and we thought, oh dear, we're maybe trapped by a forest fire. The next day, when I went out, our lake, which was just beside us, was covered a brilliant yellow. And I suddenly realized that this smoke was actually pine pollen, which was being blown up the valley in such clouds that you could actually see it like that. And all the ground was covered with the pine mm. pollen and on the lake it had settled and oh, wow. formed That's a amazing. scum of brilliant yellow. Sounds Bit beautiful. of a novelty. Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah <laughs> yellow sky, yellow lake, wow. You mentioned at one point that you went up and looked at the rocks from above. Was it on a, in a helicopter? I, when I was in Canada, the first summer I had was, was, as I said just now, going to Winifred Pass. Mm. The second summer I had all my samples and I was doing lab work, but I wanted to get out of Edmonton as quickly as possible. And I wanted to get up to the Arctic. And I uh, was able to join a small party who was going to do some field work, collecting samples of shale uh, around the Mackenzie Basin which at that time had not been drilled and the, mine, the oil companies were interested in the stratigraphy of the basin and the first thing they needed to do was to look at the rocks around the edge of the basin where the deep rocks would come to the surface and sample the shales to get um, micropaleo s- uh, fossil samples out of the shale. We took a seaplane out from Inuvik on the Mackenzie River to a lake which had been obviously chosen before and on a day-to-day basis we operated with a helicopter and the area we were looking at was badlands topography that means you've got lots of valleys anastomosing up in it was shaly rock so it weathered out in this way as, as badlands and there was one particular formation in this shaly succession which caught fire and there was a range of hills along the edge of the western edge of the Franklin, uh, of Franklin Bay, which was known as the Smoking Hills. Before I went, the people that I was immediately working for said we were going to the Smoking Hills. Nobody knew why they were smoking, whether it was volcanic or whatever, something was burning there. When we got there, we found that this particular formation on the sea cliff in particular, when it slumped, when it collapsed, as the sea ate away at the base, the shale was full of sulphur and when exposed to the air it ignited spontaneously. It didn't flame but it burnt and got hot uh, and finished up as a bright red ash. And in this badland topography where the, bear, the, the formations were fairly near the horizontal you could follow this red formation for miles up and down the valleys and it provided a wonderful mapping tool (laughs) so you know exactly where you are by looking at this red formation. So one day we landed on the beach uh, on the edge of Franklin Bay and went to look at this stuff on the ground where there was a smoldering shale and uh, it was quite eerie, smoky and smelling of sulphur and uh, I reckon it's the nearest thing I've been to Hades so far. Yeah, common theme of flames uh, that follows you. Yeah. <laughs> the people who told me that this wasn't known was, was quite wrong because I eventually got back to Dublin and discovered or was told that one of John Franklin's expedition, when he first went down the Mackenzie River in the 1830s or 40s, he, he, at the mouth of the Mackenzie, he went to the west and his, his uh, subordinate, John Richardson, took a party going around the coast, 
the, north, the Arctic coast of Canada, uh, around eventually to Franklin Bay. And he discovered, he found the smoking hills as well and took samples and, and uh, diagnosed fairly accurately eventually what was going on there. And that was all written up in a, in a book of the expedition which was published in London about 1860. I actually went to get a copy of the book out of the Trinity College Rare Books Library, which is very carefully uh, monitored. And I was given my book, and indeed it was so rare that the pages had never been cut. You may remember that in old books, they folded the pages, and you actually had to slice off the outer edge of the, of the book to cut the pages. <laughs> So it was like a, like a concertina. And so, so I start reading this rare book by getting it properly cut. So can we talk a little bit about how you first became interested in geology? You mentioned about the open air. What was it that drew you? Well, yes, I was brought up on a farm. So eventually, um, this wasn't why I went into geology. Um, as, as a little schoolboy, some friends of mine had been collecting bits of stone with crystals on them. And I, found fossils sometimes on holiday and when I was at uh, secondary school in Wiltshire the chalk quarries provided uh, nice fossils, brachiopods and sponges and uh, wonderful echinoids and I went to Trinity eventually to do natural science but with, a, with an eye on zoology because at school we'd had a very good biology teacher who had drawn marvellous diagrams in chalk on the on the blackboard and I thought I don't really want to do anything but this sounds about as good a thing to do as any and I went to Trinity and we started with something like half a dozen subjects in the first year and narrowed it down and one of the subjects was geology which I obviously had a previous interest of some kind in and then our professor took us off on field trips and he was an outgoing Yorkshireman full of vigour, he could out-drink any student and play the piano into the night and sing songs like this. And I thought, somehow this is a bit more my scene than, uh, than the zoology department, which was very staid and proper and, and less exciting. And I, I quickly took to it, as, and especially when doing an undergraduate thesis, because for the first time, instead of looking at textbook diagrams and learning how to explain them, I was actually out hitting rocks and making my own interpretations of what what uh, the geology was. Mm. I stayed on in Trinity and did a PhD, continuing again in North Cork. So you're at the time in Trinity, it must have been quite different. Can you tell us a little bit about what it was like in the department and back then compared to now? My oldest memory of the museum building is that the actual museum was still in existence. Mm. Nowadays, if you go in there and you go up those left-hand stairs, you, you meet a series of laboratories and, and classrooms. But the floor, that upper floor, didn't exist. It was put in by my professor and, uh, under his direction, probably in my first year as an undergraduate. But I do remember it as the old museum. It had been emptied of, of exhibits. And there were little piles of rock waiting to be carried away. And, and the chief technician, John Hand, uh, a, a wheezy elderly man who we all loved, standing forlornly in what had been his empire, about to be t- 
taken away and destroyed. The actual lecture rooms, there was a warren of small rooms down down below there, uh, under those left-hand stairs. You'd go in and one room would lead into another. I guess it had been changed from time to time over the years since it was built in the 1840s through many times. But the department was smaller. Uh, we had a professor and maybe a couple of full-time lecturers and, and uh, there were no women in the department, no women teachers in mm. the department for quite a long time. So um, that was the department in those days. So it, since then it has expanded enormously. You, you recently won an award, um, the Lifetime Achievement Award in Geology. So can you tell us about the, the trophy? Because I think it was a very special trophy. <laughs> yes, I think the, the award was based really on the fact that I'd been around so long that it was inevitable that I knew a little bit more about some of the things that other people didn't have a, a contact with. But um, I was awarded a um, carved model of a blastoid which is um, a, sm a small organism about the size of a pea, the fossils normally, related to crinoids. I was presented with a book full of um, my abstracts and published papers and, and uh, a framed diagram of one of the first cross-sections that I made at Navan. And my daughter presented me with a, a potato covered in gold paint with um, some sprigs uh, pushed into it because she said I she reckoned I was the champion potato grower. At one time I was I was growing 18 different varieties of potato. <laughs> so this this came up as a sort of supplementary prize. Right, right. <laughs> the the occasion was was uh, wonderful for me because lots of people I hadn't seen for a long time came. We had a wonderful party afterwards in the, in the hotel and a dinner and minimum of speeches and lots of talk. Lots of chat. That was good. Brilliant. <laughs> Thank you very much for, for talking to us and coming to the podcast. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for asking.